Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. okay. It's uh, Friday, August 17th, 2018, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And we're here to continue out our week of uh, protests and crazy shenanigans that many of us have done over the past whole year, I guess. So, good morning. Hey, Father hey, Doc- Francis, this yes, is sir. call number 24. I'm trying to slip that in. Call number 24. I'll just have to tell you in advance. Okay, I don't know what that means, but call number 24. Go ahead, sir. Sorry for the interruption. No problem. So uh, is Dr. Hill with us here? Um, yes. Yeah, good morning, y'all. Good to be with you again. Hope everybody's good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I was a little slow getting started. I witnessed a bullfight this morning. I'm not talking about some Mexican guy in a pair of uh, tight pants with a red cape. I'm talking about two bulls fighting. Mm. <laughs> That's something to see, isn't it? Oh, yeah, they're funny. Yeah, they're babies, too. They're only about yeah. maybe four, 500 pounds apiece. They're not really full-grown yet, but they, they're getting frisky now. Yeah, they learn, they learn to fight each other early. That's part of who they are. <laughs> uh, what can I say? So, <laughs> you've, been, you've been a farm boy, I guess, so you know what the score is. Absolutely. Grew up that way. Sure did. Have, glad of it, too. Yeah, I guess so. I wish I would have grown up that way instead of growing up in the shadow of the Empire State <laughs> Building. Yeah, but you make it up. You make it up for it now. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. It's really <laughs> pretty good. So, anyway, this whole uh, lather and blather and everything that happened at that uh, thing in Washington D.C. is is out of control. I think the the biggest thing we found out is that uh, most people think, especially conservatives, that. Uh, uh, Jason is the, the world champion troller to be able to drag that many stupid Antifa out on the street. Can you imagine that those people were so dumb that they got in fights with each other and with the police when we weren't even around in of Charlottesville course. and in D.C.? So, I mean, you talk about making big, make a fool of yourself. These guys are, out, these guys are outstanding, i got to say. They, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, show their true colors. When there's not, you know, what what this shows is that when we're not around, they will fight whoever is there, and if they have to, they'll just fight themselves and destroy (laughs) things. Oh, man, I can't can't tell you how how interesting it is to stand back and watch these people make fools. Just stand back right before your faces. Everybody in the world is looking at these morons. And the news media, I mean, I'm talking fake news. Now, I, I was interviewed at least 10 times by 10 major networks. I have yet to have anybody see any of my interviews on mainstream media or anywhere else because the answers I gave were so clear. That's right. So they don't want to hear that. They cannot afford to hear those things. They cannot afford to hear it. They tried to bring Donald Trump down with an association to us. Donald Trump sure. wasn't even there. 
is playing golf in New Jersey, I heard. So I don't know which was worse, playing golf in New Jersey or being in Washington, D.C. They're both pretty, <laughs> you know, they sure have gone a long way far from where I was when I was a boy, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyway, so and what's going on in the Southland at this present point in time? We got any any events coming up in the near future? We do, we do, Father Francis. Uh, we have got uh, a flash rally coming up, not uh, today, not this weekend, but next weekend. And obviously, because it's a flash rally, we can't tell anybody where it's going to be or when it's going to be exactly. But I can no. tell everybody this out there who is interested. If you are a league member in good standing or if you are one of our allies and we know who you are, then you can contact uh, me at the league website, which is com, and I will fill you in step-by-step on what this flash operation uh, consists of. And if we think that you're trustworthy, we'll put you in the loop and you can join us. And about a month from now, a little over a month from now, we've got a public demonstration in Johnson City, Tennessee, that we hope will uh, draw some attention to White Lives Matter. And we got those two things coming up and some other things that we're putting together right now. So, uh, you know, the thing is, is to always keep your enemy off balance, keep them guessing, but always keep a presence out there in the streets. And we're going to try to do that between now and the end of the year. Well, that's excellent. You know, that's one of the things that I was contemplating is like, and the, and the people that I went up to D.C. with was, you know, what's the next step? What's the next course of action that we should take? I, I know there's some people out there, conservative people out there saying, well, let's do this thing. Let's announce that we're going to have rallies here or there or wherever, and then just don't have them. We, we can make this into a big thing, a big fun thing. We can get Antifa running from here, running to there, you know, helter-skelter. We can get these people to do anything we want because they're so stupid. You can just poke them a little bit and they jump, you know. I mean, it's crazy. So Well, you can, uh, you know, and, and I think that there's some merit in in doing something like that. But one of the things that we have to, to, to think about here is the blowback on on us if we do this too much, and we start causing small towns and small cities a lot of expense because they have to, you know, they have to go to all the expense of hiring cops and, you know, getting ready for a big influx of Antifa into their town, and it costs them money. And we don't want to make any enemies among common people out there in the small towns of the South by doing this, but I see your point. I don't mind doing it in a place like D.C. or somewhere like that that deserves it. But I think we kind of have to be careful. I like the idea of making Antifa and Black Lives Matter run all over the place chasing ghosts. But, uh, for example, when we went to Shelbyville back in late October, yeah, uh, you remember it, it cost them, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars for a small town to just prepare for that day. And well, you know, you know, Shelbyville, shame on you. If Shelbyville had resisted the influx of these uh, Somalis into their community to satisfy the greedy needs of Tyson <laughs> really? Chicken, then then you wouldn't have had to pay the money. So That's exactly give us back right. our rights. 
give us back our rights and and we'll rethink all this stuff. We don't want to make small-town America have to pay the price, but golly, I mean, you you know, I'm not even going to say the name of the county, but one of the counties in Virginia where I went to do some legal research, uh, these people are already left-wingers. I mean, we're talking farm country. We're, We're not talking... You know Charlottesville. Uh, how does is Charlottesville? How the heck does a little town, a two square mile piece of property, get in a position where they can ignore everybody else around them and do whatever they want? That's a pretty interesting concept, and I think as far as balkanization is concerned, I think that's something we might want to look into. Could we move into Charlottesville and change the whole character of the town? Well, I'm thinking that you probably could because somebody's already moved in and done it, so why can't somebody else move in and replace them? Exactly. I mean, you know that most of these statues that we're fighting about right now were probably put up in the 1800s, maybe 1880, 1890, somewhere in that that era. I mean, the war was over, fences were mended, uh, people began to get along again. Nathan Bedford Forrest closed down the Klan and said, we're not, um, you know, that's something else that most people don't know. They did not fly Confederate flags at Klan rallies or Klan meetings. They flew American flags, specifically American flags at the behest of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Because the country was, the war was over, peace was made, let's, um, you know, let's get past the animosities of the of the past and see what we can do to move forward into the future. And so that was the spirit that was early on, right after the war, even though the North was ravaging the South. I can't believe that some of the stories that I've heard that the what Northern people have done to Southern people over those, those 20 or so years after the war between the states. Yeah, Reconstruction was really hard on the South. And, you know, Southerners, I think, are more sensitive and remember more about Reconstruction than we actually do about the war itself, although that was bad enough. But the Reconstruction era uh, was really a thorn in the side and still is a thorn in the side of, of Southerners. Uh, but, you know, one of, you, you raise an interesting point here. The, uh, these monuments uh, all started being built around the turn of the century, uh, say 1900 to 1920, uh, and there was a good reason for that. A lot of the Civil War, uh, excuse me, war between the states, veterans in the South had started to, to die off by that time. And this was a way of memorializing m- memorializing them. But uh, a, a hidden reason for this, and it was encouraged by people all over the country, is to make Southerners, again, proud of their military reputation because the United States Army at that time, and Navy too, needed recruits from the South, because the Southerners have always been the warrior class in America. And if Southerners were uh, alienated from the United States military because of what happened in the 1860s and during Reconstruction, they were not going to be good uh, American soldiers. They were not going to be cannon fodder for the empire, in other words. So I think that there was a detente, if you will, between North and South beginning uh, in the early 20th century, and these monuments kind of symbolize it to show that the uh, government in D.C. realized that it needed a friendly South, at least friendly Southerners, for 
military purposes. And I, I think that that's the hidden part of this story. And, you know, today, if Southerners really paid attention to what the establishment, for lack of a better word, thinks about them, thinks about their symbols, their history, they wouldn't come anywhere close to joining the U.S. military. In fact, they'd stay as far away from it as they could because they are not respected by the establishment anymore. And I don't know why you'd want to shed your blood for somebody to hate you. So Southerners need to rethink about going into the U.S. military now. Yeah, and you know, I, I, Southern Southerners, I would bet you that well over half the military is from the South, and and that certainly isn't half of the population in the United States. No. Southern people, I remember one of the things that uh, they would ask was, how many people uh, here are hunters? And everybody raised their hand that was yeah. a hunter. And then how many people here were born in the South? <laughs> and yeah. those hands would go up and so all you guys, you go over there because we're going to train you to be snipers because you already know how to do it. We don't have much training to do. And so that's the kind of lifestyle that is in the South. It's a rugged it's a rugged lifestyle. And out West, too, I would say probably even places like Arizona, which you don't traditionally think of as like the West, like Texas or something, like, or, you know, maybe Oklahoma. But uh, those place, people out there, they live a rugged lifestyle, and they can get by on next to nothing. Yeah, and, and, and Southerners populated that part of the, of the country by migrating yeah. by migrating out there. I mean, you know, right after the war between the states, uh, the the cowboy the cowboy culture, for lack of a better term, of the West was made by Southerners. These were Southern men who left the South because of the perils of Reconstruction, went out west, and they made this uh, legend this legendary cowboy culture that the whole world knows about now. Most of those uh, famous people in the West were Southern transplants. So, yeah, you're right about that. Exactly. You know, I know plenty of people that were in the service, and, and so many of them were from Alabama, Mississippi. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure, we've, we've got that... Uh, We've got that reputation of being warriors, and uh, that's a good thing, but we also let ourselves be exploited, uh, like our Scot Scottish and Irish ancestors uh, fighting in everybody else's armies, sometimes but their own, but just because they enjoyed fighting and, and military service. But if we could ever harness that among Southerners and dri uh, drive it in a patriotic direction, meaning patriotic toward the South, then we could get them away from the U.S. military and have the backbone and the basis of a southern army when we become a free and independent South. So uh, it would be the best army in the world, in my opinion. Well, I, what I would suggest is everybody that's in the military, the after boot camp and after some good basic training and you, you've achieved your MOS, that's Military Occupational Standard, uh, just go out and get yourself a Confederate flag tattoo on your tricep uh, I'm sorry, on your bicep, and uh, see how quick you get thrown out. I know That's one right. person got thrown out of the Army because he had a Confederate flag tattoo on his arm. Absolutely, now, sir. But I they mean, can't take your training away from you. Exactly right. And you know what? You know, I remember that old Arlo Guthrie song when they tried to get him into the military, and he, 
he was supposed to eat this or eat that so he would get high blood sugar or whatever, make the flat feet. Well, nowadays, all you need is a Confederate flag tattoo. That's you're right. in, you're out. And then you can fight <laughs> for the South. That's right, absolutely. That's a good point, Father Francis, very good point. So, And, you know, my thing is, you know, the, the big rallies that attracted all these people Shelbyville, uh, Crossville, we didn't have that many. Crossville was kind of a, like a workshop thing. That was Yeah, uh, it was. It was not really a public rally. Right. I think that's where Dr. Hill and I met the first time. That's right. right. There. That's you know, right. I think we both instantly knew that the other guy <laughs> was an ally. That's so, right, Father Francis. Yeah. No, I don't even think any words had to pass between us. We already knew, you know what I mean? That's right. And I think I, when we just saw each other and shook hands, we knew we were allies right there. Exactly right, and that's the way it's going to work out. And that you don't get too much farther apart than that. You got Alabama and New York City. Yeah, right. you're right. And uh, <laughs> you know, I could see the city from my house, and you know, I knew right where it was, and oh, I could yeah. pretty much see the Empire State Building from wherever I ever lived when I was a kid growing up. So, well, all anyway. I could see, was, all I could see from my house when I was growing up was Mr. White's pasture. So <laughs> it was a big difference. <laughs> well, right now, all I can see is. One house far off in the distance, about a mile away, and then the rest is all woods. That's and good, I sir. Have it any other way? That's good. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, it, rural living. Yeah, there's there's some things that are inconvenient about it. Yeah, you can't get maybe some high end Italian provisions uh, that doesn't exist around here. I mean, I went to a grocery store one day. They didn't even know what ravioli was, and I. <laughs> I think I was looking for pierogies. Now, pierogies is something I maybe, I don't even know if anybody listening to the show knows what a pierogi is. That's like the <laughs> Polish equivalent of a ravioli, more or less. <laughs> so, and that was in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and that guy had no clue what I was talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, for, from where you are, you can always drive uh, to Chattanooga or Knoxville. That's why they have big cities for these kinds of things. <laughs> it could be. I don't even know what they know down there in Knoxville, but, you know, it, it, that's one of the things that you don't see here. And the other thing is, uh, you know, you don't get good reception on your phone. You don't get good computer uplinks and uploads and things like like that. But the other benefits are so far outweighed. Oh, that, yes. That's I mean, right. It's just incredible. Yeah, they're always going to be positives and negatives. But, uh, you know, I like I like living out in rural areas because there are more positives there to me than negatives. So, Absolutely. And no matter where you are, riding around, going to the store, going to get groceries, going to the motor vehicle, you're looking at the woods wherever you yeah, go. That's right. It, that's it, right. It's, it's not like New Jersey where you might see a few trees on a street, but that's it. And yeah, then, lots of concrete. Yeah, exactly. The concrete Concrete and asphalt. Yeah, exactly. So anyway... So I'm happy to be in the South right now, and I wouldn't really want to go anywhere else. I, well, so we're even, good to have you. Glad to have you, even, sir. Well, thank you, thank you. I mean, going even going up into to uh, Virginia. I mean, you can't, you don't have to go very far in, into Virginia, and I'm on the very southern western tip of Virginia, and you're back in Yankee land. I mean, yeah, they've taken over northern Virginia. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, it's not, not like it used to be. My first wife was from northern Virginia. And, uh, you know, we could go down there and buy guns right over the counter in a, in a hardware store. And 
in New Jersey, you need all kind of permits and all that kind of stuff. They started that permit process when, yeah. I, I don't know, three years between 1960. So in 1964, I could have gone in. It was 63 and I was 18. I could have got a gun in Sears and Roebuck, no problem. Oh, yeah. But by the time I turned 18, you need a purchase permit to get a, a pistol or any kind of a gun, even a yeah. shotgun. Listen, I remember when I was a boy, I was, I was born in 1951, and I can remember in the mid-60s when I was a boy, you could see advertisements on the back of comic books and, and you know magazines and stuff like that for ordering uh, Army surplus equipment from around the world, and you could buy anti-tank guns, you could buy all kinds of heavy weaponry like that, that at military surplus prices, and you could buy the ammo for it. And I know some people <laughs> that are of my age or a little bit older who bought some of this stuff, and as far as I know, they still have it. Uh, I don't know if they've registered it or not, but you could buy all kind of stuff like that just through the mail, uh, you know, for a reasonable price. I mean, you, you couldn't buy fully automatic weapons after, you know, a certain point in the 1930s, I think, but you could buy other things. And it was all military surplus from various countries. And you just ordered it through the mail, you know, sent a check, ordered it through the mail. Yep. It arrived at your house. Anti-tank weapons, <laughs> of all things. Good gracious. What a, what I didn't a, see one of that, but I, I, know, I, I knew you could buy bolt-action rifles right out of the back of Field and Stream or Outdoor Life or, or even, like you said, maybe some kind of comic books. Yeah, I remember seeing that stuff on the uh, backs of comic books that I read as a kid. Yeah, man, uh, anti-tank weapons. <laughs> First thing I saw, I think, was a Yugoslavian, <laughs> like, you know, 35-millimeter <laughs> anti-tank gun or something like that, and they had the ammo available for it. So, uh, yeah, things have changed a lot. Yes, sir. <clears throat> well, you know, some of the things that we see, the I mean, these the smartphones and all these things, I still don't know how to use the doggone smartphone. i got to wait for my uh, couple of my young buddies to come up here and give me some lessons on how these things operate. I don't even know how to turn the doggone thing on. Yeah, that's pretty complicated, some of these things. I have learned to use a smartphone, and it's very convenient, but uh, they are rather complicated little pieces of equipment, and not, they're not cheap either, you know. I was surprised when I heard how much these doggone things cost. It's, you know, some of them are over a thousand dollars, but they are—they are just little computers, obviously that you can carry around. And some people use them exclusively. They don't have any any desire or need for a a desktop or a laptop or a tablet or anything like that. They just use their cell phones <clears throat> or smartphones, rather. So, uh, yeah, the world has really changed. I mean. You can take advantage of this communication. Uh, obviously, you can be tracked by it as well. But uh, if you know what you're doing, you you can use it to your advantage. I, I'm thinking you mentioned Nathan Bedford Forrest. He'd be the first to <clears throat> look at modern technology and figure out how he could use it for his own benefit. So exactly. we don't need to be Luddites and you know not, not embrace this. We just need to learn how to use it for our benefit, learn its positives and negatives, and... Uh, learn how to accentuate the positives, as the old song says, and, and to negate the negatives. So, uh, you know, it's just a piece of equipment. Just learn how to use it. Exactly right. And that's it. That's always the question I always ask myself. What would Nathan Bedford Forrest do? That guy was a brilliant innovator. 
He was. He'd take he'd take uh, the modern communication technology and use it to his benefit. Absolutely. Well, here's an interesting little piece that we got a, a the Detroit house rep, uh, and her name is let's see, uh, Betty Cook Scott. She's a black lady, and her opponent is, uh, I guess, some sort of Asian woman. <clears throat> she says, "Don't vote for the Ching Chong." And then she says, one of the campaign uh, volunteers for Chang's uh, campaign, an immigrant, you don't belong here. I want you out of my country. So diversity is backfiring at this particular point in time. I knew at some point all Americans were going to rally to the American point of view, including black Americans, American Indians, old-time Chinese families that have been here since the 1840s, 1860s. These people, we're the ones with the time in. We got seniority. All you new people, you need to go. Sorry about that. Especially so this was this was a black woman from Detroit saying that yep. she did not want a an, uh, a young Asian woman around who hadn't been here for very long. Exactly. She oh, says her quote Imagine in that. quotes, "Don't vote for the Ching Chong." And in <laughs> another quote, she says. You don't belong here. I want you out of my country. She also asked Stephanie Chang's black husband, a fool, for marrying her. <laughs> well, I'll be. Look at, look at that. Wow. <laughs> now, Brother Carl she, would be proud. <laughs> yeah, if she, if she had been a white woman, the press would have jumped all over her, but I guess they'll give her a pass since she's a black woman. But that is an interesting, uh, interesting attitude there, isn't it? Yep, exactly. And, it's, you know, it's inevitable. It's bound to happen. These people have been here. You know, if you went by the legal uh, shutoff point for importation of slaves, if that means that any black American that's descendant of a slave, his family or her family was here from before 1808 because that was a shutoff point. And, and so nobody was allowed to be brought into the country after that point. I think I'm right about that. If I'm wrong, please correct me. But the... Early on, these people been here. My family came here in 1820, one of my family members. So, uh, and I'm not sure on my, on my French-Canadian side, they may have been here earlier. We, we kind of lost touch with that aspect of the family. But, uh, you know, them Frenchmen, they came here real early. The earliest I can find in my family, at least on my uh, father's side, <clears throat> is the 17, uh, late 1740s. Um uh, mm-hmm. They uh, came from Scotland after the last Jacobite uprising was put down and came to the south. So I don't know about my mother's family. It could be earlier, but uh, at least the mid-18th century for my family. Yep. Well, like I said, so these old-timey black families, they've been here for a pretty long time, too. And so it's good to see them coming around to our point of view. Oh, and then, of course, Mrs. Chang or the Ching Chong, whatever she wants to be called, uh, she's all upset. It, it isn't about me. It's about elected officials disrespecting entire populations. You don't belong here. You came here to live off the back of my forefathers. That's why you're here. Go back to China. Go back to wherever you come from. Build your own country. Go back to Mexico. Take over your government. Improve your own country. There's a lot of really cool places in Mexico. You got great fishing, you got all kinds of stuff. You get great tropical beaches. Jeez, give me a break. 
Yeah, you know, this is, this is what happens inevitably in a multicultural empire. Absolutely. When you have, when you have all these different racial and ethnic groups, linguistic groups, cultural groups thrown together, into one big pot. It's not a melting pot, as some Jew uh, called it, you know, back in the early 20th century. It is uh, an unholy mess of a whole bunch of people from different races, ethnic backgrounds, cultures, languages, you name it, trying to get along in the same uh, house, as it were. And it just does not work. You know, that's why God created the nations and set people uh, inside those nations who had similarities in race, ethnicity, language, culture, etc. And that's why that works, and that's why God is, himself is a nationalist, I believe, uh, is because these, these things are natural and they work. And multicultural, polyglot, meaning many languages, multiracial and ethnic empires, uh, have been proven to be failures. I mean, you look, for example, at the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and my goodness, that was all white people, you know, just white people of different backgrounds and uh, different languages. But that didn't work. And when you start throwing people of different races uh, together in, into empires like, you know, black, white, Asian, you know, like we were just talking about here, it's going to cause conflict. It's going to cause <clears throat> people to uh, to question whether or not uh, you know, this is something that they can give their complete uh, allegiance to um, or trust. And that's why when you see tr high-trust communities, uh, where you, places like where you can leave your car windows down when you go into the store, or you can leave your doors unlocked at home when you're gone, these are basically places where you have one race, uh, one race, uh, you know, one culture, one language, one religion, uh, and these are the kind of places that work. And what we're seeing in America is this place falling apart and to some degree balkanizing because of all the major differences between the people who have been led into this land mass. You know, and it's be the fissures and cracks are beginning to show big time. And that's why we've always been uh, secessionist and separatist in the League of the South, that we, we want the South as a homeland for white people, our people, uh, where where we can be the dominant force. We could let other people in if we want to, but they have to live according to our standards. They can't bring uh, alien ideas and alien cultures and alien practices into our midst and overwhelm us. If they come in, they live according to our standards. And if we went somewhere else, we would obviously uh, afford the same uh, courtesies to, to those uh, whom we were guests of. But, uh, you know, I, I understand this, this black lady's uh, sympathies up there in Detroit. Detroit has become, for better or worse, I'll leave that up to y'all, a black city. Uh, and this, this woman is basically saying to the Chinese, you don't belong here. This is our place. Well, I certainly exactly. understand that sympathy. I certainly understand that sympathy. Exactly, and you know, you know, another thing that comes up is the, uh, let's say, who gets which territory? Everybody says, well, we're going to give this group the southeast. We're going to give that group the northwest. This group's going to take the southwest. You know, in the south, 
especially in the South, people, you had multiracial community, black and white primarily, for many, many years, and everybody pretty much got along. I remember one day in 1979, I was on the way to Florida, and I pulled over on a little country road there and took a little nap in my car. And this big black guy comes walking over. We are experiencing technical difficulties. You may not hear everyone on the call. You will be prompted when the conference is reconnected. Me coming from Newark, New Jersey, I saw it as a threat. But it wasn't a threat. The guy was just a gentleman. He was a, a southern guy, and he was just looking out for other people. So I think we can get along mixed in together in like pockets of different communities is the way I see it unfolding. I, I see it like, you know, in New Jersey, you had a black community, you had white communities, you had Italian areas, you had Irish areas, and everything kind of went along pretty cool. I, there wasn't really much trouble with those kind of situations. So we can't give up any of our seaports. We need Mobile. We need Charleston. We need Miami. We need New York City. We need New Orleans. We need San Diego and Long Beach and, and San Pedro. We need all those ports. So we're not going to give up any part of our land. May, we may, I think the first thing we need to agree on is that the, the process of separation is nothing wrong with that. And I think that the, the black people I dealt with in the black community, like the Nation of Islam people, and just regular mainstream black Christian type people, they want their own neighborhoods. They don't want their kids chucked off. I was amazed when I found out uh, sitting in, in a, a black community barbershop and just talking to the regular person coming in off the street, 90% did not want their children bused to white schools. They wanted no. to go to school in their own neighborhood. Sure. That's and, a natural and, human impulse. Exactly. And, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I think we should go back to that sort of an arrangement, and we'll, we'll be fine. Nobody yeah, has absolutely. To be, yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't, I don't want to see some poor family from Detroit being shuffled off to wherever, you know, El Paso, Texas, or live out there in the desert that that completely alien to them. You know, no, I think we need separation, and we need separate neighborhoods, and we can all, can't we all just get along? Well, you know, the, the, the thing is that uh, none of this in the I can only speak with some authority about the South, but when the South was dominated by whites, whites pretty much uh, left uh, the Negroes alone in their own communities to do things the way they wanted, as long as those Negroes did not have a negative impact on the white community. When they did, the white man came in and, and fixed the problem very quickly and efficiently. Um, but things worked. It, it was a working relationship. The white man was clearly on top. It was his civilization. He built it. Um, he was a mastermind of it. And he ran it for his own benefit, as you would be expected to. Why shouldn't I have white privilege in a country that my ancestors built? Uh, to suggest otherwise is simply crazy. Other people are here as our guests that, with our permission. And white people are, have generally proven themselves to be uh, generous and open-handed in dealing with people unless you cause us trouble, and then we'll put you in your place, as we should. But when the Jew came in and, and other uh, non-Southern whites came in and forced integration, 
on white Southerners uh, at the point of a bayonet, then we realized uh, that we didn't have control of our civilization anymore. And it's deteriorated ever since to the point where we can't even go into certain parts of our big cities that our ancestors built without fear of our lives. That has got to change, and that's got to change in every place where the white man has built his civilization, not just the South. And one of the things that I would like to do with the League is to have it be a model for people uh, in other parts of the country to use, uh, to ally with us or to join us and, and get experience in working to restore the dominance of the European peoples uh, in whatever corner of the North American continent you happen to find yourself, and also to ally with people in other white countries, countries that white people have built, you know, even, even South Africa and the former Rhodesia, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, of course, all the countries of Europe, to find an alliance between all of us white nationalists and, in our case, southern nationalists, in order to help each other reestablish our dominance over the civilization our ancestors created and gave to us. Unless we can do that, we're going to perish because, as most of your listeners know, our population in, in the world has dwindled from about 30% uh, 100 years ago or so down to about 8 to 10% right now. And those are drastically low, alarmingly low figures uh, for whites in the world population. And it's not getting any better because our people are not reproducing uh, at a rate that will replenish or make our population grow because of uh, economic situations, because of feminism, because of uh, race mixing, all the things that are, that are designed, in my opinion, to destroy the white race eventually and to make it blend into a sea of mud, as I've heard people say. And we won't have a distinct white race anymore. And that will be a terrible thing for the future of this world because our people built the civilizations that everybody else uh, is so desirous now to leech off of. And that's why people are coming to the West, Father Francis. They're not coming here because, uh, you know, they, they just want to change the scenery. They're coming here because of the material benefits, the ease exactly. of life that they can get out of the white man's civilization. But what happens when they kill the goose that's laid the golden egg? It would be like South Africa. Yes, I mean, I'd never forget that. Right. The first white man's march, when the, some question came up about people coming to America, and my Australian lady friend Laura snaps back, they didn't come here to live in no teepees. <laughs> that's right. That's the reality of it. They didn't come here to live out on the plains and hunt buffalo and live in a teepee. They came here to live in a high-rise and get free stuff. That's right. When my ancestors and your ancestors got here, this place had not been settled. Maybe a few places along the coast had been, but the interior was still a wilderness and a frontier. Uh, my family, for example, I live in Lauderdale County, Alabama, just north of the Tennessee River. My family in the uh, early 1800s were one of the first white families that by at that time illegally crossed north of the Tennessee River into Cherokee territory and established white settlements. Uh, they did that against a treaty that the United States had with the Cherokee Nation. But 
The point is that my family helped to establish Lauderdale County, Alabama before Alabama even became a state. There was a Lauderdale County before there was a state of Alabama, and I think it was 1816 or 1817, and Alabama didn't become a state until 1819. So my family has, has actually been here in Alabama and established civilization here before it was even a state. Uh, and, you know, it, it, there, were, there were no welfare offices or no, uh, you know, places you could go get benefits if you just got off the boat like you do today. No, there was nothing but wilderness and work and blood and sweat and tears awaiting my ancestors as they created a civilization out of this wilderness. And I, I, should, uh, I, should, uh, I should be able to lean on that. I should be able to say like you did, you know, my family has been here. We've done what we need to do to establish ourselves, and therefore we should have the privilege of telling other people, this is our land. You know, you're not taking it. You're not coming here and leeching off of us and taking something that we, generation after generation, have built and uh, should be ours. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Dr. Hill, yes. Robert here. Um, about what we talked about earlier on the monuments, I'm going to do some research on that, and and there's a good right. background on who paid for the monuments to be put up. Yeah, some of it's quite interesting, and bring that Monday. But we have some calls. All right, well, yeah, let's take a couple call. callers. Uh, this is Patrick from Texas. Welcome. Uh, good, good morning, uh, John. Morning, Patrick. Uh, uh, I am in contact with the uh, Republic of Texas. This is the 1835 version. Uh, when the, and we were a nation. They had embassies in Paris, France. And um, we retained all of our land titles in Austin, Texas, whereas everybody else is in Quantico, Virginia. You think you own your land, but actually you get a warranty title, a warranty deed, your certificate. Uh, they keep the, they retain the original. And, uh, uh, but... Um, Anyway, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, they offered me a job as county coordinator in, in in Houston and Harris County, but that's not here or there. I just want to let you know, that, you know, who I am. Uh, I'm affiliated with these guys, and uh, they're trying to break free. But uh, I painted a picture for the uh, Michigan Dural Assembly last night, uh, a conference call, that uh, you know, in the 1812, 1812. We had two congresses going, one in Philadelphia, one in New York City. And New York City, was, of course, is the British stronghold where Wall Street and Alexander Hamilton was a lawyer. And right. Philadelphia was our Continental Congress. Right. Now, they, they, they destroyed all our records. They came in and burned all the Continental Congress's archives. And then, uh, you know, they, uh, they went after all of our deputies that were representatives for our colonies. And, uh, and then they finished the job in the Civil War. Where they 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 tried they made us sign uh, under duress all this new document they drafted, and they stripped all they wouldn't let the, the white Europeans hold office, and uh, you know and then they come down with all these civil rights. Well, I'm sorry, but we've got unalienable rights that's in the contract, you know, and we also have uh, shall not be infringed, you know. But they don't they don't they just run right over that, and they plaster all over it, you know. And it, oh, it's just for the uh, civil rights, you're a bunch of racists. And uh, you know that's where they got us. And, that's right. They, they, and uh, you know, they just Susan's got this big rant going on about Lincoln so great. He brought in civil rights for the slaves. 
oh, you know, y'all got y'all heathen southerners were beating them all up, but we saved them all. You know, of course. <laughs> so anyway, I'm all back out of it right there. But you know, they're they're, they're trying to they're, they're painting a picture right over everything. The water, their their wallpaper over a whole damn corruption that they've done, and they're painting themselves to be heroes. But in fact, they are trying to to take all of our rights away, strip us from our unalienable rights. That's you know, right. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you, Patrick. You always have good stuff. Okay. We got one more. All right. This is uh, Eric Cub 513. Welcome. You have Hello, a question? Dr. Hill. This is uh, oh. Annabelle. Good morning. And good morning. I've been listening for a short time. I, I got on the call late. But you were talking about how what the League of the South wants to accomplish. And my question is, what steps are you taking? What action steps are you taking to accomplish this? And what outcomes are you getting? Well, we uh, are trying to have been from the very beginning trying to establish uh, contacts with, with nationalist groups in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And we've been pretty successful in doing that. Uh, some of these uh, groups uh, have maintained contact with us for uh, 20 years now, I guess. And I think it's important for us to, to, to realize that, you know, this problem that we have is not just a southern problem. Uh, we focus on it from a southern perspective because we're southerners and this is our homeland. Uh, and our, our goal has been to basically educate southerners to the fact that separation uh, is legal and separation uh, like our ancestors tried once before is probably preferable to continuing down the road that we're on. So I think we've had good success in educating people to the possibilities of what could be done in the future. But really the thing that, that we've been trying to emphasize for the last 10 years, Annabelle, is the fact that we as, as whites first and foremost need to survive uh, on the lands that our ancestors have conquered and civilized and we're not doing a, too good of a job at that right now because the lands are being overrun with aliens and foreigners who are not of our race, ethnicity, or culture, or in many cases, religion. And that, that can't be allowed to stand. And I think that, that uh, you know, not having the mouthpiece that the mainstream uh, elite media have uh, obviously means that we have to reach out through uh, programs like this and our own publications and the limited access that we now have to the internet because everybody's getting banned on social media and you know they they take down your your websites and they uh, uh, limit your ability to raise funds online all kind of things like that and uh, God knows what they'll try to do next what turn off your electricity turn off your natural gas who knows well I've had I've had uh, friends of mine propose just that. I mean, how far is this going to go? If they can take your ability to get onto Twitter, let's, for example, or any one of these social media sites, if they can take Alex Jones down, who's not really any kind of racially inclined guy, no. he's just against the establishment, if they, how far can it go? Will you need an ID to buy gasoline? You know, yeah, I don't that, that's, personally that's a good question, do not have... I do not have a valid ID, yeah. according to the government. 
And there's a guy named Carl Klein. He wrote a song that says, I'm almost not here anymore. <laughs> you, you know, fortunately, the women, when, if I go in the grocery store to buy beer and I flash my ID, they don't look at the fact that it's expired. But anybody that looks at it, I can't cash a money order. Yeah, exactly. I can't do that. Not legally. I, I legally can't buy beer. I legally yeah. can't, Well, I guess I could buy cigarettes, but, you know, this is, this is the kind of rules that they're putting in place, and we're going to be shut down for everything. Well, that, that's true, and and to get to get back to to, to Annabelle's uh, good question there, you know, the first thing you have to do in in any movement like this is you have to raise the consciousness of the people to the level that they realize that there is a problem and what to what extent that problem uh, runs, and you know that that's a difficult thing to do when the other side controls access to information to the degree that they do. We've always tried to have a public presence uh, in the streets because the left is not, even though they don't want to give us publicity, they do because they just can't stay away from stories about us. For example, let me give you, let me give you an example that happened yesterday. I won't mention the guy's name, but he's a, he's a fairly prominent politician running <clears throat> uh, for election this, this fall. He friended me uh, on Twitter, and uh, there was a, immediately a story written in one of these left from one of these big left wing blogs. In fact, I think Father Francis may have been written by that woman that called you a white supremacist. Yeah, but it, any, yeah, any, wild w w i e l l or w e i l l whatever. But anyway, she wrote the story, and the whole story was about the fact that some guy running for public office had had uh, friended me, or whatever you call it, followed me on Twitter. That was the gist of the whole story. They cannot stay away from writing stories about us, trying to link people to us, and, and trying to say what bad people we are. And I think the, the general public is beginning to see through that. But, but you know, back again to Anna, what Annabelle asked, the first thing you have to do is you have to make yourselves known to the people that you're trying to reach. And the left does help us with that. Exactly. But we have a message. We've been getting it out there for a quarter of a century uh, through, you know, very limited, very limited means with very limited resources. But we intend to continue going out into the streets, announced and unannounced, showing our flags, showing our banners and signs, and carrying our message to our people. And the message is, white man, you are being genocided. White man, yep. you better realize this, and you better stop it before it's too late. You better reclaim the lost homelands that your ancestors have so, uh, 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 you know, with so much blood, sweat, and tears have bequeathed to you. You better reclaim them before it's too late. This is the it? message. How, how would you reclaim it? How would you reclaim you, it? You simply have to go and organize, Annabelle, and you have to tell, it starts locally, you have to tell your lo lo local officials, for example, don't you even think about bringing Somalis in, for example, to work the ch local chicken plant. Don't you consider bringing illegal Mexicans in to work the chicken plant. If you do, you're not going to have a job anymore. You're going to be voted out of office. You're going to be socially shunned. We have, we have all kinds of power still if we would just organize and use it against people. And we are trying to get people 
Annabelle to realize that sitting at home and watching football games uh, on their sofa is not going to get the job done. We've got to get people up. We've got to get them angry. We've got to get them active. And that is a constant battle because most people want to go to work. They want to come home. They want to eat. They want to watch TV, and they want to go to bed. They're too worn out, too preoccupied with paying bills, taking care of their family, whatever, to get involved. But we've got to make them see that they have to put some time aside to, to save their civilization and save their jobs and save a future for their families. Otherwise, all this is going to be for nothing. They're going to be having. They're going to be working for nothing. Uh, well, you know, the people in the north. The people in the north get it. I know where Annabelle's from originally, and she's in a, from a northern state. But the people in that state get it. The twenty-five percent of the people in D.C. were from New Jersey or New York City. Right. 25%. So the people in the North get it. We know what's going on. We're stifled so many times. They cripple us with the taxes. I don't know why anybody stays in these northern states. You know, it's kind of like a South African refusing to leave South Africa because it's his homeland. It was where he was from. It's a very difficult decision when you have to say, you know what? This is is where I'm from. But it's time for me to move because I can't take it anymore. And so... You know, so people in the north do get it, and it was kind of interesting. We're going to have the one fellow that was from New Jersey. He's, uh, I think it's a, I forget what the name of the organization is, White Heritage Association or New Jersey Heritage Association, something of that nature. We're going to bring him on next week. He's busy this week, and I'd like to get, have his input. What's going on in places like New Jersey? What's going on in Newark, New Jersey right now? I used to work there. I used to live there. I think it's better now than it was 20 years ago, but it's certainly not as good as it was in 1964. Yeah. So yeah. the people in the North are waking up. People in the North have always been, many people have been sympathetic to the Southern cause for many, many years. And technically, New Jersey, I'd say at least one-third of the state is below the Mason-Dixon line. If you come across the top of Maryland, go out to the Atlantic Ocean, you're chopping off the whole one-third of New Jersey. <laughs> and there's a lot of southern sentiment in South Jersey. Well, you know, I think that there, there's been a lot of southern sentiment in northern states ever since, for example, George Wallace uh, ran for president. And, uh, yes. you know, he, he, he went to the northern states, particularly the industrial states of the north, and said, look, you know, all you working folks, up here working in these factories and everything, you're white people just like Southerners are, and you've got some of the same interest as Southerners do because we're all white folks. And Wallace's message resonated, and I think that message can resonate again from the South because we Southerners understand instinctively what this race issue is about, and we understand the Jew link because that's who came down here and fomented the civil rights movement and shoved it down our throats, were Jews. We understand the linkage between the Jew and the radical, uh, the radical uh, black civil rights movement. And that is basically the same movement today, under a different name, that's pushing whites to extinction. And that's why whites must make common cause with one another, regardless of whether we're Southerners or Midwesterners, Northeasterners, West Coast whites, Australians, New Zealands, Canadians, 
South Africans, Europeans. We're all white people, and we're all in the sights of the enemy. And, and, we need and, to pull together. And to answer Annabelle's question specifically, what what are we doing? Well, it's my position after the Charlottesville last year and the D.C. rally this year that these things make tremendous impact, but we need to do, we need something that's going to be positive like this, like flash rallies. Flash rallies are really cool. You can't, there's been many suggestions that I won't even go into them over the air right now because they're, some of them are pretty radical. None of them are illegal, but they're radical. And why would we want to give away our, our element right. of surprise to that, warn the enemy right. of what kind of things we're, we're planning that's on right. doing in the future? That's so that's right. why I propose that. that Exactly. I mean, if we, if I'm not really sure what's going to go on with the Stormfront Conference this year, uh, Don's in the middle of, you know, moving from Florida. He wants to transition up to this part of the South, up to East Tennessee, Northeast Tennessee, and so if nothing happens, and I'm sure that Billy Roper and I, and probably Dr. Hill and and several other people that are involved with this show, we will be setting up a, a meeting. And I would like to have that meeting be specifically targeted towards action. What kind yeah, of action? Let's do it. How we let's make it happen, that. just like last year. Exactly. And, you know, the, the one of the old tactics that the Klan used, and I'm not saying we should start a Klan unit or anything, but the, the Klan from Alabama didn't address the political problems in Alabama they would get the Klan from Mississippi to come into Alabama and take care of that problem, and vice versa. Yeah. Because where you live, you can be a target. Even in these That's rural right. communities, there's cliques of people, individuals that run these small communities that you don't want to be a foul of. They can right. make your life pretty troublesome. But, you know, I would think I'd be more likely to go down to Knox, Knox County and take a, a public position in Knox County than I would in the more rural county where, I, where I'm at mm-hmm. right now. That makes perfect sense. Because now you can't be targeted. And that's why Stormfront Action Radio, one of the things we, we were talked about on this, this weekend was to make people that are, that are uh, living in different areas, like Rich from New York City. Well, he's a Stormfront Action Radio reporter right now. We want press credentials for our people. We got Rich in Tacoma, Washington, that can give us an update on what's going on with that billboard up there. These are real news things. These are not fake news. Everything you heard about what happened in Washington, D.C. was an eyewitness, in-your-face account of what happened. It was not fake news. You're not. I don't think anybody will see an interview with me on TV because they couldn't twist the words I was saying. It was too logical. It made too mm-hmm. much sense. That's trying right. to put me in a box, trying to put Donald okay. Trump into the white nationalist community. That's the kind of tactics that they use. That's fake news. I All right, go have, ahead, Robert. Sounds like you have I'd, like to, I'd, I'd like to make another. a suggestion if I could have a few more minutes. Okay, so hurry we have, up. We're out, almost out of town. Time. Okay. Then you have 9,000 members. Right now, the civil rights of white people have just been stomped in the ground. There are laws against discrimination, but yet everybody's discriminated against white people. I mean, there are laws against not allowing people to use your service. There is no private property. David Horowitz said this. There is no private property. They cannot discriminate. Jerry Taylor, I heard a quote from him saying that 
they have a group of lawyers that are suing, I guess, Twitter maybe? Something. Yeah, they, they did it, successfully sue Twitter. It will not come up for a year. It will not come up That's for right. a year. That's right. But, it won't. So if you have 9,000 members, to me the most important thing right now is denial of service. Is denial of service. And what can you, with your 9,000 members, do about going, doing a big rally? And bring this to the attention that we are being denied our civil rights. We are being discriminated against. There are laws against discrimination. So that was my well, that's comment. A, that's exactly that. These are the tactics that need to be taken. And and the the, the key element here is which is going to raise the awareness. What is it going to take to raise the awareness? It's going Antifa, to take a huge rally. It is going to take you know, how a are you huge gonna, rally. Huge rally. Okay, what do you mean by huge? 9,000 people. You have 9,000 people? Where are you going to get them? No, they're not, you're not going to draw those 9,000 people because they live too far apart. You know, it has to, it's going to have to be something. But you, but the First, you've got to get the 9,000. The way that you would do it is, if you have them like in different towns, like numbers in different towns, you 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 create the rally where they go to the federal buildings in town and, and the TV stations and start saying, this is discrimination. You cannot discriminate services against are, white people. We are doing that. That's a we good idea. That. That's a very we, good idea. And here in East Tennessee, these guys are out twice a month doing exactly what you say. Sometimes they get traction, sometimes they don't, because it's up to the news media to make the, these reports. That's why we need to be our own news media. We need them coming to us, begging us for information. They, they plagued me. I heard not one single speech that anybody gave in Washington, D.C., because the entire time I was being plagued by newspaper reporters and TV journalists from all over the world including Washington Post and uh, CNN and Fox News. Uh, has anybody seen any of those interviews? No. Nope. No, you're not going to see them because what's going to happen is, is, are you a racist? My first reply, define that. Mm. And then they started to define it and make okay, it into a pejorative. Let's get this last caller. All right, go ahead. Okay, let's, let's get, get the last one more caller. He's been let's waiting. Do it. Somebody's waiting. All right. Air code 602. Oh, yeah. Welcome. It's Bob from Nevada. I'm going to be real brief because we know we're out of time. But uh, one thing we, we, we got, how about the battleground of our churches? I mean, remember, Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. You've got a captive audience right there, and that's why people are going to church. They want to be around other white folk and all white. And, and we, our, our pastors, we got to get them to drop these 501c3s because they're afraid to talk about stuff that goes out of the box. And they have an opportunity right there. Their God is the IRS. It's got to become the Lord again. That's People right. Perish, not for lack of scripture, got enough ideas, but for lack of vision. So we we got to get these pastors on board. And I don't think we can separate a white movement from Christianity. And really no, sir, I, I agree that uh, that that is extremely important. And the churches have, have failed. They failed us. The churches Terrible. have sold out to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they want, they want the approval of the world. They want the world to pat them on the heads and tell them what good, uh, you know, what good people they are. Uh, but uh, they've gotten away from Scripture, and they've gotten away from the hard truths. Yeah, we you need know what I'm saying? Jonathan Edwards. 
Excuse me. Uh, let me say something. You can work six days on politics, organizing, street protests, and then on that seventh day, Sunday, it all gets washed away when our people go to these churches. That's exactly right. The churches are giving them a false message, a false gospel. And it's based on the idea of, you know, secular social justice rather than divine justice. Well, I... Dr. Hill knows what it's like in the South as far as churches are concerned, and, and churches are always trying to recruit new members. Well, some of our guys here in East Tennessee, they go to different churches. They don't go just to their own church. They'll go to different churches and go in, and people come up to them and try and get them to join that church. It's a typical thing in the South, at least what I've seen around here. And these guys start preaching the true gospel. Right. So so they walk into churches, and they are doing these things. There's a whole lot of stuff that's being done, things that I didn't even know about. And, you know, I'm pretty much in touch with a lot of what's going down. But some of these things these I, young I men are doing... I don't think we can change these churches. We have to start our own church. These well, churches it, are too far gone. Don't you think, Dr. Hill? Some of them are. I think some of them can be redeemed, but some of them are too far gone. and Some of them just need to close up shop and, you know, admit that they're nothing but secular social clubs. But some of them, I think, are still redeemable. Uh, but they won't be if they continue down this path for too much longer. Well, thank you, Bob, for that call. Thank you're you're you. right on. You're right on there. Thank All right. Hill. We're about to Just finish like up. Yeah, thank and you, we're gonna get it. we're going to get a, a, a planning meeting going here real shortly. Things need to be done. In in the way they used to be done, and new things need to be experimented with, and that's what yeah that's yeah what we do. And we need we need to put together another uh, stormfront uh, conference for this fall too, if we can. If Don Black and and all will uh, will agree to that, I'll be happy to participate in the planning of that. Well, I'd like hey, to everybody Monday. Hey, let's think about let's Black. think about Crossville. Let's think about Crossville again. So yeah, absolutely, great place. So, all right, we'll sign it up. Good yep. weekend, everybody, and uh, I'm resting up from last weekend. I can't even believe we're at the other end of the week already. So I'll talk to you <laughs> yep. all later. All right, see, see you all on Monday. Monday. Have a good weekend. Okay. All right. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.